Good morning. If you, um, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis 32. this morning, um, but go to Proverbs chapter 29, keep a finger in 32, Proverbs 29, if you turn there also. Okay, so one finger in 32, another finger, Proverbs 29. Right? Great. Let's pray. Our Father, God, we, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that um, I pray, I pray this for myself and for everyone here, that, Lord God, we are gathered here to hear you speak. Father, you have in incredible grace decided to reveal yourself through this written word. And Father, I pray that as your spirit makes, I pray more clearly, that dear Father, that would sink deep, it would gain deep roots in our hearts. That Lord, it doesn't just affect our, our thinking, but our doing is moved, it's impacted because we see you more rightly, having spent time in this building this morning. Ultimately, Lord, resulting in our everlasting good and your everlasting glory, one and the same. I pray and ask this in, in, your Savior, in our Savior's precious name. <clears throat> Amen. So, before I read this text, I just remembered there's something I, I forgot to say. <clears throat> I am so grateful to with the fact that Mary Dean's been married to Vern for 63 years. Wow. Two of the most precious people that I know, and um, basically a grandma and a grandpa to this church. And so congratulations, you two. We love you, and um, what an example. You get to set in front of us. <clears throat> Proverbs 29, verse 25. The fear of man lays a snare. The more you fear God, the less you will fear man. And the more you fear man, the less you will fear God. These two often are at, are at odds with each other. When you, the pressures of this world or circumstances, apparent circumstances look in such a way that it makes God so tiny. It makes God as if, as if that which you know to be true about him, you, you start to buckle under the pressure, start to question it.
of that animal. And so the scripture that we're told here is, the fear of man is like that. The greater you grow in your fear of man, what man approves of or does not approve of, the more that, that snare just gets tighter, it does more damage to you. It's unfortunate when you see somebody or you see in yourself a growing fear of people's whatever you want to call it, either their disapproval or their approval. Either you're scared that you're not being approved or you're scared that somebody's being too disapproving of you. And it drives your decision-making, it drives your actions, and you start to function in a way that's based on what did they say? How'd they look at me when I... What's the response of this unsaved person? What's the response of this saved person? What's the response of people when I do this or when I do that? And all of a sudden, when that same group of people, whatever group, or whether it's everybody around you, when you start to give them that kind of a hold, God's word shrinks. You fear the Lord shrinks. His voice is very, very dim. You can't even hear him anymore because you're so drowned out and so concerned about what man thinks. It's just a sad state when you see people competing for how people are going to approve of you or disapprove of you. There's one major voice you should listen to and one that should drive all things, and that is the voice of the living God. The more you fear God, the less you'll fear man. of our God and his magnificence, the more we recognize the absolute minutia of man's power and approval. So we're coming back to our study with Jacob. And this is a guy that, to be fair, is one who is maturing. He's one who's growing. He's one that we've seen walk and base some moves that he's made on fear. Fear of what other people are going to do to him or potentially what he will not end up with or lying out of fear that he's going to lose something. And we can all look at Okay. Okay. Absolutely we are. The fear of man brings a snare. The fear of man has an ability to it that can do incredible damage. But there's something in this particular text this morning about Jacob that really does truly reveal God's at work in this guy. God is at work in this man. And so draw your attention, chapter 32 Verse 1. Mark read the prayer, but I want to give you some of the backing behind it, all right? So he's preparing. Laban pursues them. God intercedes on Jacob's behalf, says, don't say anything good or bad to him, just leave him alone. Laban whines like a baby, and then they have a lengthy conversation, then they eventually have a covenant that they make together that they won't bother each other and they won't cross over to each other's land. 
So Jacob's dealt with Laban, and he's very honest, even in his dealings with Laban in chapter 31, where he says, I was scared. I was afraid you were going to take my wives back by force. But God, God protected him. The Lord interceded on his behalf. The Lord guarded him. The Lord took care of him. He's been taking care of him. And now he's turning back and, man, you just think of Jacob. Everywhere I turn, somebody's mad at me. Whether it's Laban or now it's Esau. Beloved, there's a principle here that you, I encourage you to not miss and have it just embedded in your heart. You can get away with sin for a while at times, but it will always find you. The consequences will always find you. What I mean by that is earthly consequences. I don't mean eternal consequences. That's why Christ paid the penalty for our sin. But there are tremendous earthly consequences to our sin. Yeah, he fled from Esau. But God's not letting him do that. No, you're going to go back. Go back to your kindred. Go back to your hometown, and you're going to go and face Esau. Now, Jacob, you're a different guy. The guy who left Esau is not the guy returning to Esau by any stretch. But you are going back. And so let's look at just the first few verses here of this chapter to see Jacob preparing to go home, okay? Verse 1, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Right there is pure grace, sovereign care by God for Jacob. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that They're no longer running, they're traveling back home freely. And the angels, or messengers of God, meet Jacob on his way there. We're not necessarily told in the text exactly what the angels communicate, per se. Um, They don't bring necessarily a message that's recorded, at least in the text. We're just told that they meet him. Um, But I have no reason to think that this is some sort of a, I don't think this is a negative message of any sorts. If anything, I see an empowering meeting from these angels. God in his grace meets with Jacob via God's messengers. Remember, these angels are powerhouse. where he knows it's most likely going to be a very negative meeting. God's camp, that word camp, means mobile, present wherever he goes. Camp is not like you're always there. Camp is you're, you're moving. You have the capability of picking everything up and continuing. He's saying, truly, this is, this is God's camp. God is moving with me. God is in, in my life and traveling with me. He's present wherever he goes with support and strength. And remember, beloved, this is not the first time God in his grace has either spoken directly or sent a messenger to Jacob to bolster him in obedience. Matter of fact, you could argue Jacob has gotten some pretty, very, very special treatment from God in empowering him.
just let me remind you, Jacob is undeserving of all this that God has poured over him. Okay, so <clears throat> Jacob is not necessarily one of those magnificent Bible characters that we can say, wow, that guy, no wonder God chose to work through him. No, you, you look at the beginnings of this man and he's a cheat, he's, he's a tricker, he's a liar. And God in his sovereign grace says, yep, that guy, that's the one. <laughs> Are you kidding? You're going to work through that nasty fella? What, what do you, God, really? Yeah, why? Because my power is made perfect in weakness. Because I don't want Jacob to shine. God's going to shine through. My glory can shine magnificently through their fallenness as I redeem them. Beloved, that's us. That's a gospel truth. says, well, you, you're just a goody-two-shoes Christian, right? You do good stuff. Sometimes folks will make the statement to me, oh, if I were to set foot in your church, you know, uh, I, the whole thing would With that, but see what their, what their mindset is, is you and I have, have reached this place. We've climbed this ladder, Christians, and we made God happy enough, so now God goes, okay, I'll save you because you're the good people. That is a radical. Rescue us because we're broken people. Sinful people, lost people, and God in his grace picks up the muck and the dirty and then cleanses it. That's the truth. And so when we look at Jacob and we go, that's not who I would have picked. Well, you're not who I would have picked either. I'm not who you would have picked. Uh, in a few weeks, I'll be speaking at uh, Rockaway Community Church and. I want to speak on Jesus' encounter with the leprous man because it is magnificent to think that the sovereign God of the universe touches the man with leprosy, makes him unclean, just, just makes a, a mess socially for everybody there. But the God of the universe, when he comes in contact with nasty, God doesn't get nasty, God changes the nasty. So, why Jacob? I think he's a perfect candidate. For God's grace. Um, he names this place Mahanaim, or two camps is really what that means. God's camp and Jacob's camp is my best understanding of what he's saying there. It's not just Jacob saying, well, it's one camp, it's my camp alone. No, it's two camps. This is God's camp and this is Jacob's camp. There's two here. I'm no longer by myself. I'm not walking alone anymore. See, this is what's so cool about Jacob, is that at the beginning, he's kind of like almost questioning the Lord. If you do this, if you do this, you will be my God. Well, hold on, Jacob. Give it some time. And as he marinades in grace, the more he sees who he is rightly because he's seeing God rightly. And so now he's not saying, this is my camp who God's going to make better. He goes, no, there's two camps here. Almighty God is walking with me. All right, look down at your Bibles. Verse 3, 
And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them. So here's the message. All right, pulls together these people. He says, all right, now listen, guys, go find him. This is what I want you to say. Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau. Interesting language. Thus says your servant Jacob. I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I've sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Now, do you catch the, the language, if you will, of the way he talks about his brother Esau here? As opposed to, hey Esau, and just loosey-goosey. No, I want you to go to my Lord Esau, not that he's his Lord, but he's referring to him as Sir. It's a, it's a title of, I show great respect and honor to you, Esau. Esau, I'm coming back. I've been with Laban this whole time, but when I come back, I am filthy rich. God in his grace has provided greatly for me. I've got flocks of things coming out my ears. I've got male servants, female servants. I have an entourage, my family. Everybody's coming back. And you go, what, are you boasting? What, what are you doing here, Jacob? What are you telling your brother? I believe what he's saying here is, I want nothing of yours. Esau, I'm not coming back in any way to claim inheritance. I'm not coming back to do anything of that nature. The God has been so kind to me and has blessed me so richly. I'm coming with all this stuff, and now I am your servant. Notice he, he refers to himself as your servant, Jacob. So the way I would, if I was putting a banner over this, I would just say this is Jacob's best attempt at a white flag. I want peace. I don't, I'm not coming to fight. I'm not coming to claim inheritance. I'm not coming to do anything negative to you, Esau. I'm coming, your servant Jacob, and I have plenty. God has given me all these years, and so white flag, brother, please let there be peace. Now, I don't, I don't see that as spineless. I don't think this is a, a, a brother trying to be a wimp so that way he doesn't get beat up. I think rather what's happening here is Jacob is saying, I want peace. I'm not trying to trick you. I'm not trying to do anything. I have have taken my bumps and bruises the last 20 years under Laban. And so I, I want peace. I have all I need. And so I'm coming back as your servant. Which, now, um, This is where it's kind of tough, you guys. This is one of those white spaces in your Bible that's tricky because as you read that and commentators differ, you could go two ways with that. Some folks could see this and go, wow, doesn't Jacob trust God? Why is he even wasting his time here? Why doesn't he just stroll on in? The sovereign God said he's with him. Why doesn't he just do that? Just just trust God, Jacob. Don't try to schmooze Esau. Just do what you're going to do and let the Lord be sovereign. That's, that's one side somebody could take. Another side somebody could take is Jacob's seeking to live at peace with all men as much as it is up to him. Jacob wants to be at peace with Esau. Now, judging by what I've seen from Jacob over the years, weeks, months for us in our study, but over the years of his life, this man's temperament has changed. This man's... Um, the internals of this guy are different than they were when he left. 
And so I do not think that this is merely him trying to schmooze Esau and just being a cheat again. I think he's actually being wise. This is what's so funny when people say, well, just trust God, as if trusting God and acting wisely are contrary to each other. Why would you not do both? Why would you not show respect to your brother, show kindness to him, wave that white flag so you're coming in wisely while simultaneously trusting the Lord? Perhaps I'm given too much of benefit of the doubt for Jacob, but I've seen too much change in the man to just be so cynical as to think he's just lying here and trying to be a cheat again. I believe Jacob, to some extent, is trusting God's protection as well as doing all he can to be at peace with his brother. Now look at verse 6. Let's see how this works. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying... We came to your brother Esau. Now, the next thing you would expect it to say is, and he said. But that's not there. We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Man, he's going to throw a party, right? It's going to be a great big booming uh, welcome home party. It's like the prodigal sign, kill the fat cat. This is going to be glorious, right? That's the reason. <clears throat> no, not so much. I think it's fascinating that nowhere in there does it say that they spoke to Esau. Did they? I don't know. But it doesn't say anything about that they spoke to Esau, and they don't come back with any kind of Um, threat or or anything like that back to Jacob where, well, Esau said this, and so you you better prepare for battle. There's none of that kind of language. But it seems to be apparent in the text that Esau is coming for battle with the 400. Esau is not coming to shake hands. Esau is not coming to to, um, greet his brother and bring him in. So let's remember, for all these years, Jacob has been in the presence of Laban. God has been at work in him. And you've got to ask the question, scratch your head a little bit, what's Esau been up to? Apparently, the grudge did not shrink, but grew. See, at times, folks say, well, they'll forget about it, and I realize they're upset and there's a grudge, but it'll just kind of fade into non-existence over the time. Really? Not always, and I would say rarely does that happen. Rather, it's been festering, and now his brother's planning to meet him with 400 of his closest friends (laughs) to do him harm. And so I title this portion, The Great Fear-Producing Circumstances the great fear-producing circumstances. The messengers did not bring back the message Jacob sought after. There is no indication of love or forgiveness in Esau's response, no real verbal response from Esau. So he doesn't really give an explanation what's going here. And he's bringing 400 men along with him. Now, in the old days, it's called a posse. So here's this huge group of people traveling with him to come and most likely to do battle. Now look at your Bibles real quick. Then Jacob, this is verse 7, then Jacob was... (laughs) Yeah, 
Then Jacob went to the pharmacy in Lincoln City. All right, so, verse 7. I can read it for myself, thank you very much. (laughs) Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Now, this is where we need to be very honest with ourselves, honest with the text, honest with Jacob. So here, I'm going to ask a question, and this is kind of a rhetorical question for the most part. Does Jacob have reason to be scared? Okay. <clears throat> Let me ask another question. Does Jacob have reason to be scared? I asked you if he had reason to be scared, and many of you said yes. But there's another way to look at it, another way to ask it, another way to think through it. It would be an interesting thing, if you're interested, okay, just if you want to. It's up up to you, but at some point, take a highlighter, go through the, the lifespan of Jacob, and with a green highlighter, highlight every promise of God to Jacob of God's protection of Jacob. And then highlight every time Jacob's scared of man. So here's God who has said over and over and over again, I'm with you, I'll protect you, I'll be with you, a vast multitude will come from you, I will be in your corner the whole time, I will be guarding you and protecting you, over and over and over again. I know, but it's 400 guys! And my brother who's breathing threats against me, he's angry at me, he's been at me for, this, is, this has been brewing for years. And so the apparent circumstances make God's promise look like nothing in this moment. The apparent circumstances are so crushing, the sovereign of the universe takes a back seat to my brother and 400 people. So there's an aspect where we all go, I, I would be scared to death. And then there's another aspect where we go, shame on you, Jacob. You don't trust God. You don't trust him enough. And I'm not judging him. I'm just saying that's the truth. That's the facts. This is, this is something that struck me to the core a number of years ago as I started to read about worry. Okay, so you read through the scripture, you read about worry, and I'm pretty prone to worry, just how Dan's brain works, right? 3 a.m., you wake up and you sit there, and everything's going to go wrong that day. Why? Because it's 3 a.m. I don't know why it works that way. And you worry, right? And then the scripture comes and says, don't worry about anything, but by everything, with prayer and supplication, make your request known unto the Lord with thanksgiving. Well, Well, what did he say? He said, do not worry. What do we call that? Option? Is that what you call that? That's a command of Scripture. When Jesus says, be not afraid, do not worry, that is not God saying, here's a better option, but you think about it. Now, here's the tough part, beloved, is that all of us here, we're all, to some extent, in many different areas, prone to worry. And so, because it's so common, we give ourselves benefit of the doubt. But when I see something in the Bible that's different than I see in my life, it causes me to scratch my head a bit. 
And when I see the Bible says, don't worry, and I find myself giving myself all kinds of leeway in my worry, you go, Dan, you are let, you're letting that run amok. And you're not believing the word. And so here's, here's Jacob. God has said, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. I'll protect you. Not only that, but remember, the Lord even said, now go back to your hometown. Go back to your kindred. Go back to your people. So I'm going to protect you. I'm with you. And go back home. And Jacob is scared to death. Beloved, I, if we were to just visit one by one, just... I'd visit with each person in this room this morning and say, when was the last time you felt really scared? Like fear. Whatever. Whether it's a health thing, whether it's another person, whether it's a crime thing, a governmental thing, you fill in the blank. And he said, man, I felt deep-seated fear. This is the problem often, is that God's word we don't truly believe it in those moments. How quick can the sovereign of the universe do away with 400 men on horseback? <clears throat> All right, so back to our Bibles. What does Jacob do? In my opinion, okay, this is Dan's opinion, so take it for what it's worth. I think he does what any good leader, good father, good husband, good man would do, and he tries to come up with some kind of strategy. Okay, look at verse 7. <clears throat> then Jacob was greatly afraid. a little bit of a sarcastic cynic type, okay? And so my first thought is, okay, who wants to be in the first camp? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? No? I doesn't say that, but I'm just trying to think as a say, as a leader, as a military leader, as a dad, as a husband, what are we going to do here? And the, the idea is very simple. we got two bodies, and... Quite often, our very first impulse is not prayer, okay?
Last resort. Well, so Jacob divides everybody and has a strategic plan. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. And listen to this honesty. For I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. There's a bunch of pieces here, you guys. There's the piece where Jacob Jacob has a vision of God, a vantage point of God that he has not had prior to this point. He sees the Lord rightly. And one tell or one test of whether somebody sees the Lord rightly is whether or not they see themselves rightly. When you see God rightly, then you see yourself rightly. And both are here. Oh, you know, Father, God of my fathers, Jacob, or uh, Abraham and Isaac, he recognizes God's power, his sovereignty, and his charge over what's happening here. He wouldn't pray if that's not true. Remember, prayer is one of the best practices to show we really do believe God's in charge. That's why it's sickening to me that it's last resort far too often. Because, Dan, you, you said you believed in the sovereignty of God and his charge over all things and his goodness, his love, his care. Why would you go to him last? And so Jacob shows, no, I really do trust the Lord on this one. And so he turns to him, but notice he recognizes himself. Nowhere in here does Jacob say, and Lord, we both know why you selected me. He says the exact opposite. Look at at what he says again. Verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with my staff... Only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I've become two camps. I came over with nothing. I didn't have anything. I'm fleeing from my brother. I come over here, and God, I'm leaving with the wealth of not just the herds, but the family, but not just that, but God, my closest to you. I came in here with nothing. God, I'm leaving with everything. And Lord, you promised, your word promised that you would see good for me. Really quick, I don't think that there is anything wrong here in any way, shape, or form in, the sen- in, in reference to him praying God's word back to God. 
So what I mean is, I don't think he's trying to be a good defense lawyer here. Where he's like, well, you said God, so you better do that, as if God wouldn't do that. I don't think that's what's in the mind of Jacob. Rather, what he's saying is he's finding comfort in the promise of God. Lord, you said you would do that. I know that that's the case. I know that that's the truth. And so rehearsing the promises of God in those dark, dark days is a grace gift from the Lord. And so in this prayer, Jacob shows his plea to God for his rescue. Jacob shows great humility and honesty in the fact that he's afraid of Esau. And Jacob prays God's words back to him. Jacob is looking to God's word of promise and clinging to it. And what a funny mix, is it not? And how close to home is it that Jacob has two competing fears? I fear the Lord. I see him rightly and know his power. I know who he is. But I'm really scared of Esau. God, you are in sovereign control of these events. There's 400 guys. They're going to trample me. I'm scared. I love the genuineness, the sincerity of this man. This guy's named the cheat from the beginning, and yet here we are seeing just exploding with genuineness, with sincerity before the Lord. I'm scared. You promised. You've been good to be up to this point. I'm not worthy of any of it. Please, dear God, save me from my brother. That's the prayer of a maturing saint. That's the prayer of a maturing Christian. That's a prayer of somebody who sees God rightly, sees themselves rightly, and hears the promises of the living God and claims them in the midst of turmoil. Beloved, I just hold Jacob out to you this morning as a bright, shiny example of a redeemed human and a man who's maturing in grace. When was the last time you were really scared? You were afraid. Something happened or something is about to happen and you feel intimidated, you feel so tiny. God's word is just like whispering in your ear, but not, not, not in a good way, but just it seems so, so quiet. It doesn't seem powerful and strong and the circumstances are just pouncing and pressing. Beloved, that's where we rush to the Lord. We cling to him and plead with him for his protection and care. So here's my application this morning. How do you apply this text? There's many different applications I've already brought, but for the last 11 and a half years, roughly, I have, I have been one of your preachers in this pulpit. I have made reference to the sovereign grace of God 1.4 million times. I counted them last night. <laughs> And the interesting part is that at times when you're, when you're a newer believer or just a, a younger believer and you're studying the scripture and you find out just the jewels of systematic theology and you find out the jewels of the character of God from his word, at times you can misuse them for whatever, debate, arguments, and it becomes so thin, so cheap, so dishonoring to God. 
Part of the reason I share and continually just speak about God's sovereignty is because by nature, since I was just a little boy, I've been a, a more of a fearful type of person. And the facts and the truth, the theological boulders of God's sovereign over all things is a rescuing of my soul. Not just for the purpose of winning an argument or shutting somebody down or, or what, what not. No, it, these are, these, this is medicine for me. When, I'm, when I feel just intimidated, the weight of things in life on my shoulders, the sovereignty of God is like somebody taking the backpack off and just, oh man, that feels good. He is sovereign. He's sovereign over all things. Dan Mason is not driving the bus. The king of the universe is driving the bus. I'm not, my, my arrogance is swept up by God's sovereignty. As I see him in charge of all things, as I see him as the one who dictates, works all things after the counsel of his will, the one who says, I'll work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that our Father's in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases, that he who is in the heavens laughs when everybody is trying to stir up against him. Beloved, those are boulders he stand on. When the 400 are coming and you feel scared to death, you go, what am I going to do? This doctrine, this understanding, this God rushes in, stabilizes everything, puts you at ease. Does it change the circumstances? Rarely. But your vantage point of the circumstances become so vastly different than what they were. When you've got somebody or something that has just got you scared out of your wits, and then you get to see it from the vantage point that, wait a second, wait a second. He is sovereign over all things. He is in charge. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. And he says that he loves me more than I could ever understand, and nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So let me get this straight. The one who has all power, all knowledge, and all sovereignty over all things says that he loves me and will always do good towards me. Then I ask you, who shall you fear? What shall you fear? But one last thing. If you know deep in your heart this morning you've rejected Jesus Christ, you best be scared to death. You should be so fearful this morning in this building. Because there is one Savior. There is one means of salvation. There's not many paths to God. There is one path to God. God Almighty has provided the death of His Son to redeem people from their sin, from the penalty of their sin. And if this morning, in your heart, you're going, I'm not a believer. I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I cannot plead with you with any more fervor in my heart. Quit wasting time. And, and fly to Christ. Cling to the cross. 
There is one atoning sacrifice. There's only one. And if you're not in Christ, you will be in eternal torment forever and ever and ever. And it is unrelenting. It never stops. As soon as your eyes close in death, it is judgment. And so, beloved, in Christ, whom shall you fear? Outside of Christ, you should be very, very afraid. Father, as we um, direct our attention,